Well, good morning, church family. It is good to see you this morning, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. We want to welcome you. Hope you feel a warm welcome in the name of Jesus by those around you. And I want to invite you right now to open to the book of Genesis. Draw your attention to chapter 1. Chapter 1, the book of Genesis. We are currently in a series entitled Popular Deceptions of Our Day. This is a series that could be preached in any generation, because every generation has its series of deceptions. And so we're not unique in that sense, it's just that the deceptions change as the generations move on. The deceptions we are looking at in this series directly contradict what God has said in the Bible. They're deceptions that have infiltrated our news media. They are deceptions that have infiltrated many levels of government social media, colleges, universities, sadly, even many historic Christian colleges and seminaries and churches. And sadly, they are deceptions that are ruining families, undermining parenting, uh, destroying lives, and ruining families. And so the premise of our series all along has been this. What we're doing is not hate speech. What we're doing is love speech. Because it is an act of love to expose false beliefs that hold people captive and destroy lives. That is an act of love to help expose false. Now, you can do it in a harmful way or a calloused or harsh way. That's not right or biblical. But ultimately, to help expose a false belief system that has ensnared someone and held them in bondage and that is actually destroying them is ultimately an act of love. That brings us to the deception we're looking at this weekend. The popular deception we're looking at today, I believe, is one of the most egregious, deadly, and evil deceptions of our day. And it is this. The deception that an unborn baby is somehow not a full human life. And that means we are going to take up the issue of abortion. We're going to take it up, I hope, clearly, compassionately, but biblically. And about the sanctity of human life. And so here's the question I'm going to put the other direction. What does God's word have to say about the status of the unborn? That's the issue. Not what is our culture saying, not what our Supreme Court is saying, not what our president or governor or senators or Congress people are saying. What does the Bible have to say? That's the determinative issue if you call yourself a believer. I know not everyone here is saved, and I know not everyone here worships Jesus, but I know a lot of us do, and we call ourselves followers of him. And so these are our marching orders. This is our book that we believe is inspired, authoritative, down to the smallest letter and stroke of a letter according to Jesus in Matthew 5. Fully inerrant, fully authoritative, and so these are our marching orders. With that, to answer our question, and our goal today is not to stigmatize anyone. Please know that. This is, that's not the goal. It's just simply to ask that question, what does God say? So to answer it, we're going to look at two propositions coming from the Bible. As always, when you're working on sermons like this, what you have to leave on the editing floor is more than actually ends up in the sermon. And that's always sad for a pastor. 
but I've tried to narrow this down to the lean of the lean this morning. Hopefully, then you will pursue on. Two things we're going to look at today, two affirmations coming from the Bible that I believe are critical for forming our thinking in a Christian worldview are simply these. Number one, all people, the Bible says, are created in the image of God. The Latin, imago Dei. Imago Dei. Image of God. All people, all human beings created in the image of God. We're going to spend a little bit of time with that. Then we'll spend the bulk of our time on our second proposition, and that is that an unborn baby is a human life. With that, I want to dive into Genesis 1. I hope you have an outline. I hope you have access to a Bible, either in paper or on your device, because we're going to be turning to several passages, and it will be very helpful for you to have your finger in the text and looking at what God says, not just what I have to say. Genesis 1, verse 26. These are the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And here we have Moses quoting God in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man. Hebrew there is, you may know, is Adam, Adam, which can be a generic term or it can be a personal pronoun. It depends. As you get more into Genesis and it drops the definite article, it clearly becomes a proper name. So it's both. And God said, let us make man or mankind in our image. And then notice the next phrase, after our likeness or in our image. And let them have, interesting, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air and the heavens under, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So two things are said. One, mankind will be made in the image of God, and then the result of that is they are to have, mankind is to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air or the heavens, and then over all the livestock and over all the earth and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. That is said of no other animal. If you look at chapter 2, verse 7, it just simply reinforces this. Here, the divine name is added to Elohim, so you have then Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So the Bible is clear, ladies and gentlemen, young people, teenagers, really want your attention today. The Bible is emphatically clear, this book, that human beings are uniquely created by God. They are not the product of millions of years of evolution. There is not only no fossil evidence for human evolution, there is likewise no evidence in the Bible for biological human evolution. There's none. In fact, we've said many times, creation and evolution are two competing worldviews. It's not that one is, quote, science, and the other is, quote, religion. Nobody was there in the beginning, <laughs> except God. And so what you have are two competing worldviews, two religious ways of looking at the universe, and the key is they are both religious worldviews. And if you read Leading Evolutionists, which I have done extensively over the years, both require a faith commitment to a very religious metaphysical view. You have to have a view that encompasses all life, all of history. And to do that, you have to leave the empirical realm and start speculating to some degree unless you have a book that tells you exactly what happened. So just to be clear, what is the worldview of evolution? The worldview of evolution 
is simply the belief that all life evolved from lower forms of life, which in turn arose from inorganic chemicals. If I had any of the leading evolutionists up here today, they would affirm that is exactly what they believe. The early chapters of Genesis, they would tell you, while perhaps beautiful and poetic and such, are not real history. They are not reliable. They are not literal. They are not trustworthy. I'm a huge fan of David Attenborough on the BBC. I love his series on Planet Earth and Frozen Earth and all the different things. But in an interview recently, listening to him, he said that one of his main problems with the belief in special creation is you have to take Genesis literally. And he says, I can't do that. That is a religious commitment on his part. Just as much as anybody who says, I do believe in this. And so the result is the theory of evolution, the worldview is that human beings are the product of millions of years of evolution, of natural selection and mutation, and on it goes, and they are no different. We are no different than the animal kingdom. That is the biological theory of evolution. The theory of creation, the worldview of creation is exact opposite. It's the belief that mankind was created by a personal God. That's, you have it stated both in 126 and in 27 here very clearly. The early chapters of Genesis are real history according to the creation worldview, the creation paradigm. They are real history. They are literal. They are reliable. They are trustworthy. By the way, the Hebrew of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 is not Hebrew poetry. Not that poetry isn't real, but it's not poetry. It is straightforward Hebrew historical narrative, just like anything else in the Pentateuch for the most part. And human beings, therefore, are the result of God's special creation and are infinitely valuable and in his image. Question is, what does the Bible mean in 126 when it says all human beings are created in the Imago Dei in the image of God? Well, I mean, it's never said of an animal. Ever. It's only said of human beings. And here's what it means. That human beings, you and I alone, have a several dimensions, have several dimensions that the animal kingdom doesn't have. A spiritual dimension, a relational dimension, a rational dimension, an eternal dimension, and a moral dimension. As much as we may love our puppy dogs and our kittens, our hamsters and our turtles and our whatever else you have, a giraffe and an aardvark, they're not made in the image of God. Only human beings are. That's it. And the bottom line is that human beings alone have the capacity to reason and to create and to know God and to love and to be loved and have moral choices. And the bottom line, hear this. Here's the bottom line. It means that being created in the image of God, being a human being, means that human life is infinitely Precious, eternally precious. That's the biblical worldview. That has been the view of the church for 2,000 years. I'll get to that in a minute. But that's the biblical worldview. And to emphasize this just for a minute, I want you to turn to Genesis 9, if you would go forward a few chapters. There's a very interesting statement. I've gone to this section before. I want to do it again this morning, in case you weren't here or missed it. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Where are we in biblical history? This is after the worldwide flood. Yes, the Bible teaches there was a worldwide flood that utterly changed the geography, topography, and landscape of the entire planet. 
after that was over, the waters receded. We have an account here. This is part of the covenant made with Noah where God speaks and he says something very pointed here about this whole issue in verse 6, Genesis 9, 6, that ties into the Imago Dei and human beings being in the image of God and the implications of that. This is, that's why this is so key. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. This is a direct command about anyone who takes a human life in a premeditated evil way. Murder. Whoever sheds the blood of man, murder, by man, by human being, shall their blood then be shed, and then we're given the reason. Because God made man in his image. So we're given a command, and then we're given the rationale for the command, which God so often does. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall that person, the murderer's blood, be shed, for God made man in his own image. The Latin is for this is the, the law of lex talionis, uh, of retaliation, eye for eye. Le- literally, lex talionis in Latin is the law of the claw. That's what it literally means. And it was enshrined in the Mosaic law eventually. Now, this is pre-law, by the way. Understand, this is before the Mosaic law. This is before uh, there were Jews. This is part of God speaking into the creation order. Now, this was enshrined into the Mosaic law eventually, but this is pre-law. And it means that capital punishment, understand this, capital punishment ultimately was instituted not because it's a deterrent. I mean, it deters the person. They're never going to do it again, but that's not why it was instituted. It was instituted for one word, justice. It was instituted because the Bible says if you attack a human being, you have attacked God because we alone are in the image of God. So now let me say something even a little more provocative. Capital punishment was instituted to uphold the value of human life. And it does that. It says if you take a life, what you have done is so egregious And so wrong, the only payment can be forfeiting your life. That is not true if you kill a bald eagle. That is not true if you shoot some exotic animal out of season. But it's true of a human being. That's how precious human life is. So you may have never thought of capital punishment that way. But capital punishment was instituted way before the Mosaic Law as part of the creation ordinance. Because... It upholds the value of human life. And it all goes back to the Imago Dei that we are in the image of God. All right. Secondly, this morning, we're going to spend a little more time on this before we go to the Lord's table. And the second proposition this morning we're going to look at is this. An unborn human baby is a human life. There are many passages we could turn to. We simply don't have time. Again, I hope this just spurs you on. I'm going to dive into two in particular, but here's the question. Let me frame the question, and then we'll dive into two different texts. The question is this. In the Bible's view, are unborn human beings considered fully human according to God? And we know the answer from a lot of history is the answer is no, they're not. Many cultures, 
Some of the earliest recorded abortions were in China 5,000 years ago, according to the Royal Archives of China. Some of the earliest recorded abortions go back to the days of, of Egypt, 2000, 3000 BC. Historical records indicate abortion was very common. Also in Greece, and even Western heroes like Plato and Aristotle tragically argued for human slavery and for abortion. Plato owned slaves. And on the other hand, when you look at the history of the church of Jesus Christ all the way back to the beginning, the church has opposed abortion and has for centuries. In fact, in the second century, there's a manual called the Didache, means the teaching, was used widely among leaders and bishops, churches. And the Didache explicitly, second century, by name, forbids abortion. So this is a very ancient condemnation in the church. Very also very interesting, I mentioned a few weeks ago, the American Medical Association, when it was formed in 1847, lobbied state legislatures to outlaw abortion. That's fascinating. And when Margaret Sanger launched Planned Parenthood so many decades ago, she was actually anti-abortion. Hard to believe since Planned Parenthood today by their own statistics and data, are the largest provider of abortion. Margaret Sanger was opposed to abortion. And everything changed in 1973 with the Roe v. Wade, and now the landscape has shifted again with the Dobbs decision back in June, which did not kill a constitutional right. Abortion is not in the Constitution. There is no way to read abortion in the Constitution even the drafter of the majority opinion back in 1973, Harry Blackman, all but admitted that in his own autobiography and said he was already convinced he was just looking for a way to codify it and make it law. And so the Dobbs decision did the right thing in bumping the issue back to states on the state's level. Now it brings us back again to our key question. Are unborn human beings considered fully human in the sight of God? I want to look at two passages this morning. I hope you have, again, I hope you have your Bible because I want you to see the text here. First, Exodus 21. Exodus 21. Here's the situation, and then I'll read the verses. You have two men that are fighting. Somehow, they injure a woman. We don't know if she tried to intervene. We don't know if in their fighting they bumped into her or knocked her over. She's pregnant. But somehow she gets caught up in the fight and the melee or the aftermath of it. And she's somehow knocked down and gives birth prematurely. That's what's going on here. But neither the mother or the baby are killed. We're in chapter 21. So there is no capital punishment. In fact, if you go to back to verse 12 for just a minute... Look at Exodus 21, 12, just back up. The law of retaliation is restated. We had it in Genesis 9, 6. Here it is again. Genesis 9, 6. Now Exodus 21, 12. Here is the law of Lex Talianus again, the law of retaliation. Whoever strikes a man or a person so that they die must be put to death. That precedes what I'm going to read right here, and it's not an accident that it precedes it because it's the controlling principle of what we're about to read, this story, which is an example of it. Two men fight, knock down, or somehow injure a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely, but mother and baby are both fine, and so there's no capital punishment. I'm going to read starting in verse 22 through 25. 
when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, the Hebrews plural, her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, not killed, pay a fine, because mom and baby weren't hurt, ultimately. As the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Now, I want to stop there for just a minute. I think it's always good to examine and acknowledge the other side. So, for just a minute, let me show you and tell you what the... There are some in the pro-abortion camp. There are actually some who claim to be, quote, Christian, who hold to a pro-abortion position, which is absolutely contradictory, theologically, biblically, spiritually, and logically. But there are some in the pro-abortion camp who've tried to say, hold it just a minute... The baby doesn't actually die in verse 22. In fact, the old RSV, Revised Standard Version, as far as I know, is the only English translation that translates that there, a miscarriage. And so they try to argue, look at the woman was injured, yeah, and the baby died tragically, but the, 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 the men are only fined, therefore the baby is clearly not viewed as human, fully human, because they, they don't have to pay with their life. And so this was a miscarriage. And the question is, when you look at verse 22, it says, so that her children came out or were born prematurely. Either one's a legitimate translation. The question is, is this child born alive or is this a miscarriage? That's, that's literally the question. A Hebrew verb, so that her children come out or go forth, but there is no harm. The Hebrew text says, and her children, it's plural again, go forth, but there's no injury. That Hebrew verb, go forth, never in the Pentateuch refers to a miscarriage or an abortion. You may say, well, are there Hebrew words? That, there are. There is a Hebrew verb, shakal, that refers to a miscarriage or an abortion. In fact, it's used just over in chapter 23. Shakal is used. It's not used here. This is a Hebrew verb that always indicates a live birth. So the Hebrew of verse 22 always in the Pentateuch refers to a live birth. There's no indication this child died. And since there's no death, there's no capital punishment. But if the child were injured, there is then to be full recompense. But neither mother or child ultimately were seriously injured, meaning what? That the child as well as the mother are considered of equal value. This is a very strong text indicating and teaching that a baby in the womb is fully human. Very strong. The other passage we want to look at is the one read for us this morning by Eileen. That is Psalm 139. I know that some of you are very familiar with your Bibles and know this. I know that others of you, Bible, you're brand new to the Bible and you're not familiar with this. But I want to look at it for just a minute. Psalm 139. Here we have one of the clearest announcements that God knits together every human being in the womb. And again, the question is not, what does our government say? Or what does the senator say here and there? Or our governor or the president or the Supreme Court or anybody? The question is, what has God said? You couldn't put it in any clearer Hebrew or English or any other translation than you find here in, in Psalm 139 verses just, I'm going to read verse 13 to 16. This is King David, the Holy Spirit speaking. 
For you formed me, says King David, in my, in, in my inward parts. You knitted me together where? In my mother's womb. My mother's womb. You know where, tragically today, one of the most dangerous places for a child to be is in their mother's womb in Western culture. You formed me in my inmost parts and knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now notice, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Every day was ordained for David before one day came to be outside the womb. That's a stunning statement. My frame was not hidden when I was made in secret, intricately woven. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book written, days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. You couldn't have a clear text. And let me just quote two others. I'm not going to turn to them. Jeremiah 1.5. Many of you know Jeremiah 1.5. Some of you do. Jeremiah 1.5. God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you in the womb, before you were born, I set you apart. That clearly shows how God views the unborn. Or, interestingly, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 41, we read this. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, the baby, in this case, John the Baptist is a baby, the baby leaped in her womb. It's the same Greek word for baby (laughs) for any postnatal baby in the New Testament. Baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. We could go on and on and on and on. But the point is, is undeniable. Young people, kids, hear this. The point is absolutely undeniable. Human beings are created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And because of that, human life is infinitely precious and to be protected at all costs. That's the bottom line here. Before we finish up, I want to address just a couple of the arguments that are the most current arguments used to undermine this, to argue for a pro-abortion position. I think one of the most deceptive these days is this, and I've heard Christians even say this, something along the line that, well, abortion is tragic, yes, but it should stay legal because unwanted babies are only going to face lives of misery and depression and anxiety and despair, so this spares them all that. There was a recent op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal. July 29th by Erica Commissar. She's a New York psychoanalyst. This was in the Wall Street Journal just two months ago. It was called The Human Cost of Restricting Abortion. So I just want you to listen to one short piece. Listen to the subtleness of this argument. As lawmakers consider enacting restrictions on abortion, she was speaking about the number of states that are clamping down on abortion, they need to be mindful of the consequences of what they're doing. Listen. 
Unwanted pregnancies, she argues, become unwanted children. That's an assumption she's making that is dead wrong. Now, it can be true, but just to say as a matter of fact that every unwanted pregnancy becomes an unwanted child is absolutely false and a lie. And she goes on, unwanted children then are prone to all sorts of problems, depression, anxiety, addictions, and other social and emotional disorders, especially true when the mothers are young and immature and unable to handle the responsibilities of parenthood. There's so many things wrong with that paragraph, but for the most part, right up front, she says, every unwanted pregnancy simply becomes an unwanted child, and that poor unwanted child is going to face a life of misery. Better not to even have the child, therefore we need to keep abortion legal. Friends, this is where it's hard to be pastoral and say something that's strong, but I'm going to try to do that. To ever argue, teenagers hear this, to ever argue that it is morally acceptable for any reason to eliminate an entire class of human beings created in the image of God, there's only one word for it. Evil. I'll add a few others. It's genocide and it's demonic. There's no other word for it. doesn't matter who that class of people is. Whether they're Jews or Uyghurs right now, the Muslims being butchered in China, whether they're Tatar or Cambodian or Malay or Ukrainian or Armenian or the unborn. It doesn't matter. If you argue that it's okay to eliminate an entire class of human beings, that is evil. Becky and I have had the, I said in the first service, I don't want to use the word privilege because that's really not what it is. We've had the opportunity to walk through Auschwitz a couple years ago in Poland. Some of you may have done it. It is absolutely horrifying to walk through the gas chambers of Auschwitz because that's exactly the logic they bought into. That is the demonic evil of the Nazi regime, that there was an entire class not worthy of life. Life not worthy of life was the German phrase and should be eliminated from the planet Earth. That's the same argument being made today about the unborn. Now, beyond this, you have all the deception and language games that go on all the time. Nazis were pros at this. Again, at Auschwitz, you walk through the gas chambers. They were labeled bathhouses. Why do you do things like linguistic deception like that? Because even the perpetrators know what they're doing is evil, and so they're trying to mask it and cover it up. There's no difference today. And that stuff goes on all the time today. One of the biggest linguistic deceptions today is... For a woman to say, well, it's, I can do what I want with what? My body. Problem is, the person inside you, not your body. They may be dependent on you, but it's not your body, medically or biologically. Or the deception of labeling abortion clinics as reproductive health services. That is a lie from hell. That is ex- now, they do some reproductive health services, But fundamentally, they're abortion clinics, and the child in the womb isn't getting helped at all. They're just getting killed. When Becky and I were first married, we lived in Boulder, Colorado. And Colorado is an extremely liberal state, but one of the foremost abortionists in America lived out there at the time, Warren Hearn, H-E-R-N. 
He was always in the paper. The clinic was always being picketed. Just a couple years ago, I Googled his name to see where he's at today. He's still alive, and he wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times just a couple years ago. Listen to this deception. He's still just as passionately committed to killing the unborn. Here was the title of his op-ed piece in the New York Times back in May 2019. Pregnancy, this is his title, Pregnancy Kills and Abortion Saves Lives. You can't get more evil or demonic than saying something like that. And when it comes to abortion, our world is flooded with semantic deception. And the sad thing is, Christians buy into it. And they hear it and we just go with the flow. And it's no different than Christians under Nazi regimes buying into the whole lie. Many opposed it, but some did not. And it brings to mind Isaiah 5.20, which is a horrifying verse. Woe, in Hebrew that woe is a very strong word of condemnation. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. They will face the wrath of God for what they have done. You know, we like to think of ourselves and our own generation as far more enlightened than previous generations, don't we? We love to think of ourselves as far more enlightened than our grandparents and our great-grandparents and, and, and beyond. I believe, ladies and gentlemen, that our descendants one day, I, I strongly, I wrote a blog on this a year or two ago, I strongly believe our descendants one day will be as embarrassed and horrified at our toleration of abortion as we are by our ancestors' toleration of eugenics, slavery, and sterilization laws. Now, those made sense to our great-grandparents and beyond, or at least to many of them who just bought into Woodrow Wilson's program. Hist listen, history has a way of exposing the folly and evil of previous generations. We all know that. And it will be no different for our great-grandchildren and beyond looking back at us, and I believe they will be horrified that we tolerated the murder of the unborn in our generation. Illinois, by the way, is an island of access for abortion. Uh, just recently in June, front page of the New York Times, I was in a hotel, I got my New York Times that morning, and I opened up, and right on the front page was this. It was a graphic with all the states around Illinois in gray and Illinois in yellow, an island of access showing that Illinois has the most extreme abortion laws in the Midwest, some of the states around far more restrictive, and are showing that Illinois will remain an island of access for abortion, much like California views itself. Just in 2020, there were 50,000 abortions in Illinois. I bring this up not to cause rage, not to cause a riot, but to say we need to be strategic in our prayer and where we give our money and where we give our time and energy and how we vote. Okay, summons. And then we'll go to the Lord's table. Here's our summons this morning. Three things. No summons, no sermon. Number one, all human beings are created in the image of God and they're accountable to him. I am, you are. Genesis 1.26, God created mankind in his image. Hebrews 9.27, every person is destined to die once, and after this will come judgment. So what's the gospel? Maybe you've never heard the gospel before. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came, 
died in the place of those who would believe. And if we turn and flee from our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved and covered by his blood and forgiven. That is the good news of the gospel. So all human beings are created in his image, including the unborn. One day we will be accountable to him. Second takeaway, second summons this morning, all human lives should be legally protected, including unborn lives. The Bible says all lives matter, every single, every color, every race, every class, including the unborn. All lives matter, including the most vulnerable. When I hear our president talk about, I, want, I am for the most vulnerable, and then he leaves out the unborn. That just doesn't compute. Because the most vulnerable in the womb, again, the most, one of the most dangerous places to be as a baby in America is in a mother's womb. And so in a sense, what we're doing this morning, what I'm doing this morning is my wife leaned over at one point and said to me, I'm speaking for those who can't speak. And when you speak up for the unborn, you're speaking up for those who can't speak, that are human, that are created in the image of God and deserve to be protected and are precious in God's sight. True Christians need to think about this, especially as we go into national elections year after year. You know, I hear a lot of people say, well, I don't want to be a one-issue voter. John Piper, the great preacher and theologian in our day, says, here's the perfect response to that. He says, I don't want to be a one-issue voter either, but he said, for any politician of either party to say, it's okay to obliterate an entire class of human beings, he said, that person's disqualified, and so he says, I'm a one-issue disqualifier. That's a far more biblical way to look at it. Imagine anyone else coming along saying, well, I, and they had every policy you liked, but they said, I think it's okay to obliterate and murder an entire class of human beings. Let them name the class. Would you vote for them? You'd say, no, even though I like all their fiscal policies and immigration policies and tax policies, whatever else. That disqualifies them. So I think John Piper had it spot on. He wasn't speaking about Republicans, independents, or Democrats. He just said, for anybody to run who is pro-abortion, he said, they're automatically disqualified. He said, for my vote, I'm a one-issue disqualifier. And Becky and I claim the same thing. Also, one of the best ways to get involved in this is pregnancy resource centers, to give financially and to give with your help. And I'm proud to say that our church is very much committed behind that cause. Lastly, let me say this very pastorally. If you've had an abortion, and I know there are those in our church who've had, there is forgiveness in Christ. There is no sin not covered by the blood of the cross. If you're alive and breathing, you can go to the cross and be forgiven. Please hear that. That is so important. So, so important that you understand the grace and forgiveness that is there for the asking, if you will ask for it. No sin is beyond the grace and forgiveness of God. And so I close very purposely, especially if you've had an abortion, with this verse. Psalm 103, verse 11 and 12. As high as the heavens are above the earth, hear this, so great is his love for those who 
fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If you've had an abortion and if you've repented, it's done in God's eyes. And you are clean in God's eyes.